and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Drop Dead Fred, also known as DDF in Contrarian's Headquarters. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my counterpart, my friend Julio. Julio, here today to tackle yet another patron demand, this time coming from across the pond, whatever awful American expressions we can use. Uh Coming from Filmbusters, Paul, is that correct? That is correct. Uh, he uh, he didn't even hesitate. Like I said, hey, Paul, it's your turn. And he hit me like I think five minutes later with Drop Dead Fred. And I didn't even ask what that was. I just said, all right, you got it. You're a patron. I don't second guess you. And and, and thankfully, it was streaming. So that, that made it a lot easier. It than, was? Uh, yeah. Where? Well, I mean, as a rental. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I was just thinking of uh, when we did Dead Alive, which was Paul's last. Oh, yeah, we had to do some sleuthing. That was not for streaming that. anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This Drop Dead Fred, dude, I want to swear, I, I think it was on Tubi when he told me about it. And and then we hit the dreaded first of the month, and uh, <laughs> there was some oh, reshuffling. Yeah. It's the reset. Uh, no, it's on. Uh, I rented it off of YouTube, and it appears as though. It's the a um, the remastered Blu-ray version of it because a few scenes in this were not in the theatrical version based on some research I did. Where did you end up watching it? Oh, I did Amazon, so I might have gotten the theatrical. I didn't get. The, uh, it doesn't the... sound like it's too much. It sounds like there's just like a couple of uh, gross-out things that the recu- the studio requested be removed that were put back in for this. No, uh, no Kevin Klein cameo. No, sadly, it was supposed to happen, just didn't materialize. Gotta gotta bring him in whenever possible. This is a no. Actually, no. You don't want him interfering with the genius that is uh, Phoebe Cates. He uh, he did the thing where he drove by. He told his driver to slow down just so he could see like what was going on, and then he's like, "Just just keep going." <laughs> I don't want to embarrass my wife. All right, drop dead, Fred. Eleven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, first and foremost, just get out of the way. Thank you for our patrons, and specifically in this case, Paul. For any first time or new listeners, we'll uh, explain exactly what we do on our Patreon and how you can check that out if so inclined. Come the second half of the show, uh, but let's first go ahead and explain to you what you're doing here and what you can expect uh, here on the Contrarians. We like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. A lot of times accompanied by that delicious IP certified fresh. And what we'll do is 
make a case for maybe why that is a bit overstated. Maybe why that movie isn't as uh, good as its Rotten Tomatoes score would entail. We typically shoot for about uh, 90% and above. And uh, yeah, talk about some uh, kind of overplayed tropes that are used, poor direction, uh, bad acting. Just things critics might have swept under the rug. Uh, conversely, we'll find a film on Rotten Tomatoes, like here today, that is rotten, typically 30% and below, uh, being that Drop Dead Fred is at 11% on Rotten Tomatoes. It'll definitely be getting the treatment of us uh, discussing its positive merit, maybe some underrated acting, some underrated storytelling, uh, themes, uh, scores is a big one that we come to time and time again. Uh, all in an attempt to just say, hey, this shit's subjective. You can be as over the moon about something if you want to, as you want to be or as cynical about something if you set your mind to it. And more importantly, that these Rotten Tomatoes scores don't always tell the whole story. There's a lot more to a movie than just saying it gets a 75%, etc. That comprises the first half of an episode, what we call Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movies we're discussing, they have to check out the second half of the episode. That's correct. Uh, part two of every episode, it's the aptly titled Real Talk, where we tell you how we really feel about uh, the movie that we watch. We tell the audience and we also tell each other. Uh, this is a movie, Drop Dead Fred, that we, at least I had never even heard of. And uh, I know for a fact that Alex hadn't, at least. He hadn't seen it. Uh, so very, very memorable VHS box box art. I remember seeing this it's burned into my brain from childhood, but I've never actually had sat down and seen the movie. So is this Jade and Crash, the Unholy Trilogy? It's this Jade and Frighteners with Michael J. Fox. Oh, there you go. Well, one of those things is not like the others, Alex. Um, what I'd like to see Chas Palminteri playing Drop Dead Fred. Hey, that's not face. I'm just trying to think of <laughs> what he would have said. <laughs> Uh, but anyway yeah so we so we don't know how the other one feels uh all the communication that has passed between us uh, about this movie before this recording was alex texted me when he was about i don't know 20 30 minutes into it he texted me what the fuck is this (laughs) but that can be read (laughs) in a number of different ways so yes come real talk we'll we'll finally we'll get to talk about uh just what Drop Dead Fred did for us and what it didn't do. And and maybe even uh, what it did for Paul and why he recommended it or demanded it even. But that that's coming out later. First, we're going to pretend that this movie's fresh, whether we believe it or not. Ain't no pretending about it. Julio, 11% though. And that's a, it's a pretty rotten tomato. What... Uh... <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's part of this movie's legacy, too, is that it was just absolutely panned at the time and now is a bit of a a cult classic, as they say. That's what I knew about it, is that it's some people regard it very highly by today's standards. So what was the what was the scuttlebutt? What is the scuttlebutt? What are what are critics then now and forever saying about Drop Dead Fred? These quotes immortalized uh, on the Rotten Tomatoes website. Uh, We'll start with Candace Russell from the South Florida Sun Sentinel, who says, A charmless, irritating psychological fantasy that can't decide whether to aim at kids or adults. And to that I say, this is why we celebrate Pixar. That's the whole point, that it's for kids and adults. So why can't uh, Drop Dead Fred do the same? (laughs) Was it ahead of its time, Alex? Just might have been. It's just because it's not animated, I think. 
Next, Michael Wilmington from Los Angeles Times says, Drop Dead Fred is an erratic stab at making madness sensible, a slapstick nightmare that goes too sane, that tries too hard to be both good and rotten. Really, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> I was about to say also, just absolute brilliant use of the word rotten in the review there. Yeah, do you think that he wrote it thinking that it was going to end up as a quote with a rotten symbol next to it? I don't know. Was Michael Wilmington also ahead of his time? Clairvoyance. That's like the end of 12 Monkeys right there, man. (laughs) He's reading the quote that he wrote 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and his mind is blown. Um, Johanna Steinmetz from the Chicago Tribune says, Drop Dead Fred is a movie for people who like the sound of fingernails on blackboards and the feel of a drill bearing on a bicuspid. Well, as we learned in... um Little shop of horrors. Some people are into that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, And we're going to close with uh, one of the big ones. Gene Siskel from the Chicago Tribune. Oh, this was, yeah, this was his worst movie of 1991. (laughs) Yep. He says, this is easily one of the worst films I've ever seen. He didn't even say I've ever seen this year. No, ever seen his entire life. Uh, I'm going to guess that Gene Siskel didn't have an imaginary friend. It's hooey, Roger. Hooey. If you're curious what we're referencing, go check out our crash episode. One of the the all-time Siskel and Ebert moments. Uh, I mean, that I think that sets the stage pretty well for what we're getting into here. Honey, why'd you call him Drop Dead Fred? Because that's his name, Daddy. Like many small children, Lizzie had an imaginary playmate. Drop Dead Fred is going to teach me how to cook today. Someone she could talk to. Sugar? Yeah. Someone she could share with. Oh, Grandma Bun! Someone who would never let her down. No more drop dead Fred! Period! Now Lizzie is all grown up. To us. And when her perfect life fell apart. Charles, I lost my money, my car, my husband. She didn't get mad. Drop dead Fred. She got Fred. I do have to say, coming into this with the limited knowledge that I had and just, you know, knowing it was a request, a demand rather, uh, and my knowledge of it just kind of being this ubiquitous video at every store I went to as a kid. And I remember seeing like clips of it on the TV because I remember seeing uh, Rick uh, Mayall's like blindingly red hair. There were shots in this where I was like, I've seen this before. Did you think he was Carrot Top? Uh, no. This guy wasn't clearly cycled up for his his role in this. <laughs> I don't I can't even remember now. I don't think Carrot Top in the like chairman of the board Carrot Top I don't think was juiced to the gills like Carrot Top is now. <laughs> Whatever the case, the uncertainty was quelled and I was just taken back to a time when it was better, a much more comforting and wholesome and just a time I pine for constantly when I saw that classic universal title signature opening us up. And then it was followed by the new line signature. Yep. <laughs> so I was ready to go, man. Piece of film. This is a, the three steps to, to Nirvana. Mm-hmm. It's like the universal signature, the little piece of film for new line, and then Phoebe Cates on the opening credits. No joke. It used to be better. You're right. It was directed by... Um, I know we're going to fuck this up. Uh, a Dutch filmmaker. Uh, I'm going to s- 
my stab at it is Ate De Hyong, Ate De Jong. Uh, his filmography just kind of going over. He did one episode of Miami Vice. He did a, a B horror comedy called Highway to Hell in 1982. Of course, director of Drop Dead Fred. Just a, a strange kind of all over the place. And as you would guess, a lot of um, films in the Netherlands that he made. Also, for a while, Alex, they had him picked as a replacement, uh, James Gunn's replacement for Guardians of the Galaxy 3. But then James Gunn had to go and clean himself up and they rehired him. And now our friend Ate is no longer part of the MCU. Sadly, much like the uh, Kevin Klein cameo, it just never materialized. I know. It just it exists in our imagination, like Fred. <laughs> it was written by the duo. The screenplay was written by Carlos Davis and Anthony Fingleton. Uh, again, sporadic. Uh, credits for those two men so it's just kind of a buckshot of things coming in here released on may 24th of 1991 in the united states uh took a while to get to the united kingdom but of course this is before the days of the internet so they had no fucking clue october 11th of 1991 was the uk release for it with a budget of a little bit under seven million dollars with a box office return domestically of um a little bit under 15 so I think the confusion around what the fuck is this movie about and who is it for paid off, doubled their budget. <laughs> Why is Fred speaking in a British accent? Unassertive and repressed Minneapolis court reporter Elizabeth Cronin visits her husband Charles, from whom she is separated on her lunch break, hoping to sort out their problems. He reasserts her desire for a divorce and says that he is in love with another woman named Annabella. So that sets the stage of our main character here, Elizabeth, played by Phoebe Cates. Julio, bring me up to speed on Phoebe Cates in 1991. Man, this is, I think, just a couple years before she just dropped off the face of the earth. Before she, before Kevin Klein said, you know what, you don't have to work. I got this. You can just chill. I found myself uh, reading about that. And when did we talk about her before? Was it when we did our like mini coverage of Gremlins? And mm-hmm, our Chris- that has to be it. Okay. So I remember us talking about her previously, and it was just, it's one of those things you would think there's more drama to it, but it's not. She just wanted to start a family and was kind of tired of acting. So it's like, good for you. Like I did, uh, I did two Gremlins movies, and I did Drop Dead Fred. What else do you want from me? Uh, yeah, the, you know, the Mount Rushmore of films: the two Gremlins, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and Drop Dead Fred. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's like I've earned this. Let me raise children, please. Yeah. So from Kate Berenger to Elizabeth Cronin, uh, she is just having an awful day here. The movie opens on her as a little kid. And getting told a story, a fairy tale by her mother, who seems like a very nasty lady, leads to a pretty fun sequence of opening credits, too. Very original opening credits. Mm -hmm. Uh, They set a misleading tone for me, Julio, though, because the the punchline to the opening scene is a little kid swearing, where she just says, what a pile of shit. And then it goes into the opening (laughs) credits. So I, I were, do you think they were intentionally subverting audience expectations? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, because this movie is, it's not just that the the plot is pretty out there, but also I think that the tone is pretty out there. I think that there is, uh, I made the Pixar comparison earlier, and uh, I mean, it was kind of 
a joke, but it's also appropriate, I think, because Pixar does that thing now, like in the modern movie, the blend of uh, comedy and tragedy. And that's what this movie does. And I think that when you have a little kid, a little girl, even especially just cussing in the first five minutes of your movie, that definitely throws you off guard to where you're, I think, more open to any tonal changes that come later. So yeah, pretty smart move, whether that was from the director or from the screenwriters, or maybe it was a suggestion from the little girl herself that was there and just decided to do a little bit of improv at the end and, and they decided to keep it. But uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good a good throw to the opening credits, which also feature the this sort of leitmotif, like the score that repeats itself throughout the movie. The I, I guess is what you would call the Drop Dead Fred theme. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's they get stuck in your head the way it did mine. Kind of. The score is a little bit all over the place for me. So I didn't I, I guess I wasn't paying attention to the, the overture that appeared every time he came into the, the fold. Oh, I think you know what the problem is, Alex, that you've only seen this movie once. I actually played it twice. back to back. My God. It was I was folding clothes. And I was like, did I miss something when I was dozing off? <laughs> I mean, hey, that Paul, that's the commitment to the craft that we bring you. All right. Nice, nice piece of music. That's what I'm saying. Charlie, her uh, husband that she's estranged from, that she's trying to get back together with here, is uh, played by Tim Matheson, who has come up more than once recently on The Contrarians. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, he plays Charlie and it's 91, but his hair screams 88. It's like, I don't know when this movie was filmed, when it went into production, or if he just like was so convinced that that look was going to come back around. All right, the filming took place uh, in August and September of 1990. So that hairdo, whatever he was rocking, was already out out the door, man. But Tim Matheson, who who are we to question him? But it's like you watch this, and he he looks nothing like the guy in Animal House. Like the dude in Animal House just looks like a, a hot guy by today's standards. And here, Tim Matheson's still still a good looking guy, but it's just an example of like the the havoc that 80s hairdos wrecked on the American public. Well, this is a, a time of transition, right? Like the 80s are fading out, the 90s are fading in. So there's a lot. It's not just his hairdo. There's a lot of elements in this movie that kind of scream 80s. There's a couple of montages that I was like, oh, this has a, an 80s vibe and not in a bad way, just in a disconcerting way, which, again, is kind of the 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 strategy of the movie to keep you off balance by never uh, letting you get too comfortable so yeah, I mean the, the the his hairdo is right on right there, and I think that you're also supposed to be kind of mystified by this guy. And not, his appearance is just one aspect of it. Uh, another aspect is the fact that he's married to Phoebe Cates, and he's cheating on her. Yeah, the, I think that's makes part, sense of that. You may be onto something too about like it adds kind of a question into the bewilderment of the uh, Lizzie character because it's like. You're Phoebe Cates. What are you doing with this incarnation of Tim Matheson? <laughs> she just really likes the 80s. I guess so. But yeah, her day just goes from bad to worse because Tim Matheson is just reaffirming that breaking up is the right thing to do for them. She goes to talk to her friend to kind of vent about it. So she's broken up with. And while she's on the phone, her car gets broken into. So she gets robbed and then her car gets stolen. And then she shows back up to work where she's a stenographer and gets fired on the spot there. Uh, so it's not a good day for her. Mother, do you remember when I was little, I had this 
friend? He was make-believe? No. Don't you remember I was the only one who could see him? No, I don't remember Drop Dead Fred at all. So she can't stay with her husband at her apartment anymore, so she ends up going to stay with her mother, Polly, played by Marsha Mason, in her childhood home. And while up there, she takes out a jack-in-the-box, and basically it it's taped shut. When she removes the tape, it releases, we find out, her imaginary friend from childhood, Drop Dead Fred, played by, as I mentioned, a legendary comic in his own right, uh, Rick Mayall. I got very, very... Uh strong Paul Bettany vibes from this guy. Do you know who the the role was originally offered to? Not Paul Bettany. It was not. It was Robin Williams. He turned down the role. Oh, wow. That's... I don't know that that would have made this movie a success financially or, you know, like a critical success. Because, I mean, Robin Williams has been in his his own share of... uh, his share of bombs, but... Man, I don't know. It might have been too much for Phoebe Cates. For everybody, Just a, a supernova, yeah, yeah, <laughs> burning through the film. Now this guy, I mean, it's. I wonder if he had, if he knew that. Do you think that the, this this guy, what's his name, Rick Mail? Yeah, do you think that Rick Mail uh, he uh, he knew that he was second choice after Robin Williams, and he spent the entire production trying to measure up to that. I would imagine it was also, from a directorial standpoint, uh, turned down by Tim Burton. It was offered to him. And, I mean, there's some pretty big Burtonisms uh, in the closing scene that we'll get to here shortly. But, uh, I mean, yeah. And that would, all I think, in a lot of ways would motivate you. I know this that, that was a studio thing, though. The screenwriters wrote it specifically for uh, Rick Mayall. I mean, that's a good way of, you're right, motivate him. I mean, he, he walks in thinking he's hot shit, and then they tell him, listen... <laughs> You're no Robin Williams, so really, don't don't make us go chase him. We had already had reference to the the drop dead Fred character, so this was kind of like our meeting him because uh, we have like this meet cute um, after Elizabeth is fired, where she bounce, where she bumps into a childhood friend, Mickey Bunce, played by Ron Eldred, and I just. I still cannot figure out where I know this guy from, but I definitely know him from something. Season four of Justified. Uh, no, definitely not that. But <laughs> Okay, well, I do. <laughs> but he explains, you know, you were a troublemaker uh, when we were younger, and you always said it was your friend Drop Dead Fred. So that's that's that sets the table for where we are now, that he's, he's back in the, in the fold, so to speak. Uh, so, Alex, when you uh, – because this movie, like you said, it keeps you guessing. But so when we had this scene between her and her childhood friend, and he mentions her imaginary friend, and the title of the movie is Drop Dead Fred. At this point, two questions. One, did it click for you that the movie was going to be about her reconnecting with her childhood friend? And two, if that was the case, did you imagine that Drop Dead Fred was going to be like what we got? No. No. I Throughout the course of this movie, I mean, it's. I was trying to figure out the tone for a lot of it. And I couldn't tell if we're supposed to think she's psychotic, uh, if she's like seeing things, if this is, you know, actually a real person, that type of thing. Because when he mentions Drop Dead Fred for when they were kids, it shows them like throwing a bucket of paint on his grandmother. Uh, But you don't see who did it or anything like that. So I I really it was all a surprise, especially the way it, it came out in the end with his green suit and his bright orange hair. Julio, was it what you were expecting from the Fred that we had heard so much about up until this point in the movie, this just ominous figure that we were waiting to see? 
what struck me the most, and I think that just took over, it eradicated any other thoughts, was how much he looked like, uh, is it called, is it Monsieur Meurt from uh, Holy Motors? Ooh, good one. Yeah. It, it, that has to have been Leo Carax's inspiration, right? He must be a, a big Drop Dead Fred fan. Had to be. Yeah. Now I can't unsee it. <laughs> Keep waiting for him to eat Phoebe Cates' hair. That's the R-rated cut. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jesus. Play the, <laughs> the Godzilla music when he shows up. Uh, smoking like a chimney. That's what happens, like, you know, 40 years down the line <laughs> when Fred finally grows up. I, I, I actually, you know, now that I've seen the full movie, uh, I actually think the green is probably a reference to Peter Pan because that's, mm. you know, there's heavy Peter Pan themes uh, throughout the, the story here and how... You know, it ends with Phoebe Cates growing up, but Fred can't. Like Peter Pan, he's just stuck in perpetual childhood. And uh, yeah, I'm sure that the 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 design, the production design, had that in mind when they put them together. But uh, yeah, so that struck me. And then after that, I just kind of let it take me for a ride. I I don't think I was expecting it. And then after that, I kind of learned not to second guess the movie at all. Just let it happen. Probably a call for the best, uh, because up until this point, it's you don't know what's coming next. Because because we get a wild Carrie Fisher here. She <laughs> plays the the friend <laughs> of Phoebe Cates as uh, is it um, Janie? She plays, mm-hmm. and man, this is like seasoned actress Carrie Fisher because she's got her serious uh, businesswoman haircut and all this shit, and. She is like the one positive influence in her life at that time, because even her friend from childhood seems a bit off kilter. And her mom, <laughs> again, Polly, is just an awful person. And we learned that throughout the course of the movie. Uh, the, we have a series of flashbacks that basically just show how awful she was to her daughter and how emotionally abusive she was. But Carrie Fisher is kind of like she's a little bit older than Elizabeth. So she's kind of like the fun aunt. But. <laughs> We don't get to see Carrie Fisher too much on here because we've never really dedicated much time to Star Wars, nor do I really think uh, what we do here would ever come to that. So it's it's always a good time when we get to talk about Princess Leia. Yes, uh, she is. It, it's kind of like the double whammy of uh, precious careers in the sense that there's probably uh, this sense that Carrie Fisher should have been in more movies, just the same way that there's that sense that Phoebe Cates should be in more movies. And, and you get both of them here. And it's you get them together, acting off each other. So it's it's, it's the tale of what could have been. Yes, it's like give us more. <laughs> just they could, man. Just a couple episodes ago, we we're talking about who could remake Romeo and Michelle, and that could have been just an alternate Romeo and Michelle, Princess Leia, and uh, and Phoebe Cates. They have really good chemistry together, and I think that it has to help that Carrie Fisher. She wasn't just an actress; she was a writer. So you can tell that, you know, that has to be an asset that that she could just kind of modify her dialogue as in a way that would suit her. Like she could just rewrite mm-hmm. on the go. But bottom line, yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw Princess Leia. I geeked out and uh, I was worried because I thought that maybe it was going to be one of those like one and done. But she's actually a character throughout the entire movie. And, oh, yeah. and she changes. She she goes through an arc. So it's, it's pretty exciting. Don't forget, she recently appeared um, in the Friends Travaganza. She had a cameo in uh, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Who was she? 
Uh, she played a nun in that movie. That's right. Jesus. There was so much going on in that movie. We didn't I'm not really... going to blame you for not remembering anything in that movie. <laughs> Fucking hell. What order did you girls say you were from again? So, so I think that at this point in the movie, and you kind of mentioned it, you know, it's, it looks like uh, Phoebe Cates might be having a sort of mental breakdown. Uh, but it also, she reminded me of, uh, of that friend that we all have. Like the friend that can't stop dating somebody that's bad for them. Uh, because the, the through line in this movie is just her obsession with Charlie, her ex-husband or her ex-husband-to-be. Uh, we all know that he's terrible. It, it, you can tell. And we know that Phoebe Cates deserves better and that she should know better. But still, it, it's like you have to buy that this woman would be so obsessed with somebody that's so toxic. And you buy it because I think that anybody that's had friends male and female who've had the, that one boyfriend or girlfriend that they just can't get over. Uh, like once you've had that experience, then this movie is instantly relatable. And oddly enough, you find yourself on the side of Fred, who <laughs> at some point in the movie starts trying to make her realize that, uh, that Charlie's a bad guy. So mm-hmm. at some point I thought that this movie was going to be about her realizing that, you know, her, her ex-husband's a terrible person. And then that would have been enough, but the movie goes on deeper because, like you said, that she is, she's having a breakdown, and break that breakdown is coming from trauma from her childhood. Like that's a, it goes beyond what her husband uh, did to her. It's just about what her mom did to her and what her dad did to her. Like it's just, it's really heavy shit. Like again, it's like we're in Pixar territory way before Pixar was even an idea. So. Fred is back. He wants to help her feel better. He doesn't quite recognize her because it's been 20 years. So she's obviously grown up, but explains that, you know, he, she wants Charlie back. So he, I guess, figures out that's the way to do it. And yeah, we see a series of flashbacks to when Elizabeth was younger. So we get a bit more context for her and uh, Fred's relationship. They, you know, got up to no good like you do with your imaginary friend. But <laughs> no one, no one believed her that there was someone there, you know having fun alongside her, just thought she was uh, her mom specifically. Uh, Polly just thought she was uh, a bad egg. Um, she Polly takes present day Elizabeth out to get a makeover. So Phoebe Cates gets a, a fancy new haircut. Uh, she comes back to a note from Charlie saying, Hey, uh, I, I want you back. When she shows back up to the apartment, we find out that drop dead Fred, also known as DDF had faked the note. And, uh, was there to try to help and she doesn't want his help, but she can't escape him anywhere she goes. It's just, it's like ghost town. It's just around because there's something to still do. It's just kind of like this stuck in purgatory type thing, but she basically just tries to outrun it. Like, um, it follows. Yep. She just, she tries to get ahead of it and just get away from it. Yeah. Uh, did you know that on the weekends, DDF becomes DTF? God bless. <laughs> Tremendous. Um, uh, Actually, that I mean that joke doesn't really work in the context of the movie because I, I guess part of the charm of uh, Drop Dead Fred is that he is I don't know I was gonna say he's asexual but no later we see him get really excited when uh, uh, oh he's a creep in this he's constantly upskirting women and then the there's the one imaginary woman that he gets really excited to see the, yeah but then he doesn't seem he doesn't seem to have any sort of feelings towards Phoebe Cates. No, because that that's not the point of 
drop dead Fred. He's an imaginary friend who just got stuck in time. He's just there to help. He was there to help her as a child, you know, kind of have a friend and provide fun. And now he's trying to understand that she's grown up and what he can do to help there. And here in the case is trying to either patch things back up with Charlie or just try to convince her so that, so she's happy. But again, she tries to escape it and, by doing so, she goes to Carrie Fisher's houseboat that she lives on. Like she's fucking Robert Downey Jr. at the end of Zodiac. <laughs> she uh, she lands on uh, Carrie Fisher's boat on her date night. Apparently, the one night of the month where she has sex. She's a uh, a mistress. Yeah, this is <laughs> she is she's Mistress Leia. God bless. But of course, you know, she tries to stay there to avoid Fred. Fred shows back up the next day and what you know it ends up How does this even happen? He ends up sinking her houseboat. So it it really is uh, Phoebe Cates' fault because she thinks that she spots Charlie on his boat, I guess their boat. Uh she sees him like sailing past and so she becomes obsessed with following him so she gets the boat started and then Fred shows up, materializes and mm-hmm. creates chaos and the boat sinks. I think it was right at this point in the movie where I thought that we were maybe on solid Shyamalan territory where the movie was building up to revealing that Fred didn't really exist and this was just something that Phoebe Cates was doing on her own. Did you ever get that feeling during the movie? That yes. maybe it was that yes. we were going to get that reveal? <laughs> I, it was going to be that where they show like the where the scenes we saw earlier in the movie, but it's just her doing that shit by herself. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Either that, or I thought it was going to do the, the Wayne's world two thing uh, at one point where like one or two other people can see Fred. So I, I I was waiting for some sort of swerve. Yeah. We've been conditioned to just expect laziness out of these movies. Julio. Yeah. They don't need swerves. You don't need a swerve when your story is good. Your characters are good. Your actors are good. You just need, you know, to tell your story. But yeah, that's uh, I you're right. I was also waiting for the moment where either Carrie Fisher or uh, Phoebe Cates' mom was going to see Fred. But no, the movie never goes there. It, it wisely keeps it. It sticks to its rules. Only uh, Phoebe Cates can see him. Yeah, until the end. Well, yeah, then, then she passes a torch. How about hide and seek? Great! I love hide and seek! So they sink Carrie Fisher's boat. Uh, Elizabeth goes to the office to make uh, Janie aware that the boat sank. And this leads to a full-on meltdown. This is the type of thing you'd see on public freakouts, like on YouTube or Reddit these days, where Carrie Fisher just absolutely loses it. And Okay, explain to me here. Do you think she actually believes that Elizabeth is seeing someone, like an imaginary person, or she just does this entire show where it makes it look like she's beating up this invisible person just to basically scold Elizabeth for how crazy she appears to be. I think the beauty of it, Alex, is that you can read it both ways. You can read it as uh, her indulging her friend for the sake of her friend's mental health, and you can read it as Carrie Fisher actually believing it. Because... Even until the very end of the movie, she there's a moment where she's like, so thank God for Fred or whatever. And, you know, it kind of makes you think that she's she's fully on board with the idea that there's this imaginary character. Personally, I thought that she was a really good friend 
that was kind of playing along, humoring Phoebe Cates. Mm -hmm. And then when she has that, because, you know, she goes into this big production number where she pretends to be Fred. (laughs) And that was just Carrie Fisher externalizing her frustration because, you know, she can't beat up Phoebe Cates for sinking her boat, but she can at least pretend to beat up Phoebe Cates' imaginary friend. So I I thought it was a very, uh, very clever bit of writing. And uh, the movie never tells you which way uh, uh, Carrie Fisher leans in all this, but she is, I mean, like they said, she's a, a ride or die. She stands by uh, Phoebe Cates because there's so many ways in which this could have gone wrong in which, you know, she sinks her boat, Phoebe Cates sinks her, uh, Carrie Fisher's boat, and that's it. That's the end of the friendship uh, mm-hmm. until, you know, the end of the movie where they make up again. But no, here it's just like, what's well, something that happens? And then they, they move on. She ends up going on a lunch date with Mickey. Uh, and the whole time Fred is there to the side of her, just fucking with her, making her do things like pour a drink in her lap, uh, throw the glass on the ground. Uh, even when the food comes, she throws it over her head. And wouldn't you know it, Mickey loves it. He thinks it makes her a free spirit. <laughs> and this is like the scene in Big where Elizabeth Perkins goes to Josh Baskin's apartment. Uh, I don't know why I'm using one shoot name and one work name in that <laughs> equation there. But. But she sees, uh, she starts to see something in him and finds his childlike wonderment and glee appealing. And that's kind of like the thing here. He's just, he thinks this is endearing to her as a character, kind of, you know, throwing societal norms on their head and just living freely like you would a child. And it's, uh, it's a pretty heartwarming scene. It is. It, it's also, uh, one of those moments where you start questioning if, uh, Drop that Fred is a force for good or evil or something in between. Because uh, it's not like he's trying to help her hook up with uh, this guy with Mickey. He's actively trying to sabotage her date. But it, it just happens that it works out in her favor. But by now, we're kind of halfway through the movie. And it, it's one of those things where like the movie keeps you guessing, right? Because at first I thought, okay, her, her reconnecting with her imaginary friend is going to help her work through her issues she's gonna embrace what she was missing since childhood and that's gonna be the solution to all her problems and then Mm -hmm. as this kept going i'm like no actually drop dead fred is a problem he's an agent of chaos so really what she has to learn is she has to learn to let go of of all this uh childhood bullshit and and grow up and then of course the movie ends up kind of like doing both It, it it pulls that that trick of uh her growing up while embracing parts of Drop Dead Fred, but also moving on from from his childhood antics, so it's it's pretty clever. But at this point in the movie, you really don't know what what's the end game. Is the end end game going to be uh, Phoebe Cates versus Drop Dead Fred, or is it going to be Phoebe Cates and Drop Dead Fred versus the world? And uh, well, it ends up being the latter. But you know, this at this point, it's it's hard to tell. Well, then the next scene here where she's going through the mall and, you know, we see shots of her like talking to herself and uh, she goes crazy here and ends up beating up this violinist thinking that it's Fred. And does she get she doesn't get arrested, arrested, but like the mall security pulls her in for this. I I think that uh, once she pays or once her mom pays for the violin, she's off the hook. Yes. Yes. That's what happens here. But Fred is there the whole time kind of like, what what happened? What's going on? Um. (laughs) This leads Polly to take her daughter to the doctor, of which she hasn't taken since you know twenty years prior. Because we see there, it's all little kids, and we find it's this doctor that specializes in uh, imaginary friend disorder. 
And Phoebe Cates is obviously sticking out like a sore thumb. You know, one of the moms tries to talk to her, like, who's your daughter? And it's like, I'm not. My mom's in there. She's like, well, then who? It's me, like explaining <laughs> that she has the issue. This is like a reunion scene with Fred, though, uh, as uh, Rick Mayall uh, really gets some time to shine here with just being really erratic and crazy and flailing about with these other, uh, I would assume they're comics of a similar variety uh, that all play different imaginary friends that all seem to know each other. I guess they come from the, the same place. But it's one of those scenes, Julio, where we don't know the backstory and we don't know why this is so much fun but it, the way it's just presented is such a good time that you can't help but just smile and get lost in it gotta help Herman ah Fred ah punch me It's easily my favorite scene in the movie because I, well, like many things in this movie, I did not see it coming, but also just the the possibilities that it opened, right? Because it's uh, my first thought and it's on my notes. It just says, oh man, it's the, the imaginary friend verse. Just that suddenly you see all these different versions of something that you thought was unique to Phoebe Cates. And it's like, oh no, all these kids are sitting in this waiting room. They all have... It's the <laughs> hanger from any Star Wars movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and then I thought of Inside Out, uh, where... Uh, Ooh, good one. You know, towards the end, when you see how everybody has like their own little set of people in their heads, and, and they just see them interact and being silly in the, the same way, but also in their own unique way. Like, they each have their own little gimmick. Like, there's the guy that, uh, man, it's, it's kind of disturbing, but it fits the movie so well. The guy that has a zipper on his neck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's kind of like a fucked up image, but but this movie makes it work, makes it funny. And uh, and then, you know, at some point, the, the, the female imaginary friend shows up and they celebrate her. And yeah, it, it's just, I guess if somebody were to ask me to, show them one scene of Drop Dead Fred that encapsulates what the movie is like, I would show them this scene, the waiting room scene at the doctor's. Elizabeth has prescribed some pills that's going to help out with the situation, and the other imaginary friends tell Fred, don't let her take the green pills. That's You're going to go bye-bye if that's the case. Uh, this leads to a, a flashback uh, back to Elizabeth's pretty traumatic childhood where we start to learn that there's a bit more loving and warmth coming from her father who finds interest in her tales of her imaginary friend and her mom is just, will hear none of it and thinks, you know, she's very status obsessed and, uh, you know, what will the community think? And this isn't how young girls act and this isn't how you're supposed to behave and that type of shit. Do we ever find out what happened to the dad? He just he left. left, right? Okay, that's... I, I mean, you can make the argument that the mom was such a bitch it drove him out at the same time. It's not really fucking cool to abandon your kid like that, dog. You didn't just abandon your kid. You abandoned her with that mother. Yeah. You basically left her to suffer more abuse because then the mother blames her for the husband leaving. She says as much. Yeah. If you asked him, he'd be like, oh, well, she had Fred. She'd be okay. But yeah. It's like this chaotic sequence of Fred appearing and they, they make a mud pie, grab too small a slice. And uh, they just create an entire mess out of the kitchen. And, of course, Polly comes in and throws a fit and locks 
drop dead Fred inside of the Jack in the Box, for, for which he stayed for 21 years until he was, uh, you know, the lamp was rubbed at the beginning of the film here. Now, to be fair, Alex, put yourself in this woman's shoes, though. Imagine you have you have a daughter, and she's back. She's being acting up, and then you kind of walk in on this conversation she's having with an imaginary friend, where they're discussing how one of them is going to eat your head, and the other one is going to eat your body, and then they're gonna shit all over the table. What's that, the problem? I mean, that's cause for concern. Yeah, I think this movie. I, what I would hope, what I took away from it is. It's not to say one person is right and one person's wrong, um, and it's also not to say that abusers uh, don't bear the the majority of the blame, uh, don't deserve the majority of the blame. But at the same time, it's like we do see situations here where, just like you said, Polly has absolutely no idea how to react to this. Yeah, I mean, I think that taking her daughter to the doctor is not a bad move. <laughs> it's just that... Uh... Well, we have the privilege of having access to Phoebe Cates' inner world, so we know exactly what's going on. Uh, but I think that the, the movie itself, I mean, it, it stops short of completely demonizing the, the mother because at, at the very end, you know, they kind of, I, I think that Phoebe Cates forgives her, which is, it's a big deal. How do you know? Because she was a good little girl. If she had been naughty, the prince would have run away. What a pile of shit. Back in present time, Fred convinces Elizabeth that they should run away together uh, to the Charlie party for her to go, you know, find Charlie because it's still that's what they both believe is going to make her happy. So they go there. Fred is dressed to the nines as it's a pretty fancy, like, wine-tasting cocktail party. Uh, I think it's an art show as well. Dudes in togas. There's dudes in togas. We see that Bridget Fonda is Annabelle, who's playing the the new muse for Charlie. But Phoebe Cates shows up there looking absolutely ravishing, so he sees her and wants her back. And that's what that's all she wanted she thinks she's found purpose again so we get a montage you know of them just going through the daily routines as a couple and uh it's still it seems like he's not entirely invested in it they're making out at one point and he calls her annabelle and uh she's still just really into it until fred basically finds out and explains to her that he's still cheating with annabelle he's still a snake that type of thing because fred's been watching the entire time <laughs> yes not creepy at all. No, I mean they they have to have had sex by then, right? The, during this montage, there's no way <laughs> he, that it was just he watched. Out. Yeah, he totally watched. And she explains, "I can't leave him." You know, he knows it's not good for her, but she says, "I I can't leave because I'm scared of being alone." This is all the while Fred is dying because she's continuing to take these pills to try to you know get rid of him, and. Instead of taking the last one, he says, just come away with me. And she ends up passing out. And I, I thought she might have died here. Like, I thought this was mm -hmm. her going to the afterlife with them. But it's basically just a dream sequence that they go to where it's her imagination creating the reality around them. And what happens is she tells Charlie to fuck off and then stands up to her mom and declares that she's no longer afraid of her. She, like, yells at her. I'm no longer afraid of you. 
See, and you said you said Tim Burton. This is what you were referring to, right? The sequence. Yep, because this looks straight out of the end of Beetlejuice. Yes, I thought uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and not just because of the whole like I'm not afraid of you slash I don't believe in you. <laughs> uh, that that's ends up vanquishing her problems, but also uh, there's this sort of uh, dreamy sense you know as, as she's walking through this because it's it just doesn't make sense the way the dream doesn't make sense uh charlie drives up in a in a car but then she's able to take something off the car and the car deflates like it's a balloon and yeah uh, yeah i mean i can see the beetlejuice but i thought uh i thought freddy krueger first fair enough it's a good call but what this does is help to basically free herself from her childhood and you know move on and finally move past it and what this means is that Fred no longer is needed. He tells her, you no longer need me. You know, you're no longer trapped in this childhood. And so they kiss and then he goes away. Were you expecting that kiss, Alex? Because we just. Fuck no. <laughs> yeah, me either. We were just talking about he, how... he like demands it. <laughs> Listen, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go with a smile on my face. Bring it. Fair fucks to him. So upon waking up from this, Elizabeth is on her own now. No more Fred. She dumps Charlie by she dumps this huge salad on his head that she was making for dinner. So girl power. Love it. And then, then she picks her nose. She does and wipes it on his face. <laughs> to show that, you know, there's still a little child in her somewhere. That's how you own someone. Salad and then booger. <laughs> she goes and forgives her mom. Explains, you know. Her mom still Polly doesn't get it, but she just explains how she feels and that she forgives her. Uh, she says she's going to leave. She she leaves the home and Polly says, I'll be alone without you. After all these horrible things Polly said, she still is just comes and looks at her and said, well, then you should find a friend of your own. And it's pretty amazing she can forgive her for that. And I don't think that she's you know going to tell her to fuck off and that she's never going to talk to her again. It's just... She's learned things about their relationship, and I think it's just going to – communications are going to be uh, fewer and farther between these days. Well, it's part of uh, – I think that's part of growing up. Like Part of becoming an adult is kind of learning to forgive, and uh, that is you know, exemplified perfectly in this final sequence. That's uh, her leaving Fred behind. It's like he – he did his duty. He served this purpose, and now she's she's an adult. And being an adult means that she gets rid of toxic relationships, but that doesn't mean that she has to hate everybody that she's parting ways with. So you, it really gives you the sense that she's become somebody that can be on her own, uh, which is not what you would have said at the beginning of the movie. A few days later, she goes to visit Mickey. And uh, Julio, do we know up until this point in the movie that he was a single father? We do, because uh, when they have their meet-cute, he talks about... Yes, they have the picture. Yeah. yeah, and he's like, I'm recently divorced, but this is my daughter. I'm, I'm keeping custody of her, so... Oh, yeah, because she's like, I don't like that word. <laughs> he's like, <That's> daughter? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we learn that her his daughter is a little nightmare, too. And we find out that Drop Dead Fred has moved on and is now uh, the imaginary friend for this girl. Looks like her name is Natalie. Uh, and it causes the nanny to quit. And they like borderline try to quarter and draw the <laughs> nanny as she's leaving. Uh. Uh, dude, this ending is just, it blows my mind because it's it's amazing that it works both as a horror movie and as a sweet comedy. 
Uh, did you get that feeling? <laughs> uh, a little bit, yeah. Because she has that look of just like, I know I've passed the curse on. Exactly. <laughs> she she knows. And, and because she can't see him anymore. So th- that's another thing that just gave me hardcore uh, Peter Pan flashbacks. Because it, I don't think it's in the movie, but in the, in the book, uh, basically, Peter Pan stays a kid and then Wendy becomes... A woman, she's older, and then Peter Pan comes back for Wendy's daughter, and then later for Wendy's granddaughter. And the idea is that, well, he's only interested in kids because when you're an adult, you mm-hmm. lose that sense of magic, so so you just can't go to Neverland. And uh, that is, I mean, uh, in a much more concise way, that's what happens here. She she moved on from Fred, but that doesn't mean that Fred is gone. It just means that he goes, he lives on to, uh, I guess. To either help or corrupt or both uh, the next generation. And the way that this is shot with the close-ups of Phoebe Cates as she realizes she puts everything together. And the close-ups of the little girl who's just laughing and wiggling her finger as if there was somebody there. But, you know, nobody that we can see. If you replace it with a horror score, it's a horror movie. Oh, yeah. It's pretty fantastic that they, they were able to basically do it both ways. Bringing it back to Nightmare on Elm Street. That's... Where we see the mom like smiling as they drive away, like the like Fred should have just snatched Elizabeth at the end, uh, you know, smash cut to the credits, or uh, Mickey, just like <laughs> pull him from yes from underneath, uh, and then just a geyser of blood. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that was Drop Dead Fred. That was Drop Dead Fred. Uh, that's uh, an hour and forty seven minutes. Uh, yeah, I think it was like an hour 40 before credits. Yep. It feels like three hours. Definitely does. So, Julio, that was a difficult jaunt. So <laughs> let's move this to the second half where we can discuss uh, how we really feel about this patron demand. Let's drop into real talk. Real talk. 